Hello, and welcome to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans, a podcast taking you on a tour through ancient Greek and Roman history, seen through the lives of the most famous and influential people who lived it, with the ancient historian and biographer Plutarch as our guide and companion. Hello everyone, and welcome back. After a number of episodes focusing on important Athenians, for this episode we will be shifting our attention to a Spartan named Lysander, whose life would have far-reaching implications in the Greek world and beyond. A Spartan? Okay, I've got my bowl of black broth ready. Let's get it on. (laughs) Right on. Well, first the obligatory recap. In our previous episodes on the lives of Nicias and Alcibiades, We saw Athens experience a number of ups and downs in its war with Sparta. After years of conflict, neither city was able to gain a decisive advantage, with Sparta and her allies remaining dominant on land, while Athenian triremes dominated the seas. Alcibiades proposed to break the stalemate with a bold strategy to conquer the island of Sicily, and convinced Athens to launch a major expedition to the island. However, when Alcibiades became mired in political scandal and fled to Sparta, he was unable to personally lead this expedition and the leadership ultimately fell to the cautious Nicias, who was defeated and killed by the Syracusans along with thousands of other Athenians. Despite this massive setback, the Athenians were eventually able to regain the advantage when Alcibiades returned to the Athenian side and led them to a series of naval victories over the Spartans. Alcibiades struggled, however, with keeping his fleet supplied and his sailors paid, and when a battle was lost while Alcibiades was away from the fleet, the fickle Athenian public voted to remove him from command. Alcibiades would never return to command, or return to Athens, and would sadly end up assassinated in Persia some years later, at the request of the Spartans. So I'm guessing that once Alcibiades was removed from command, the Spartans were able to regain the upper hand in the war? Well, the Spartan Lysander would certainly try to do just that. Lysander was an exceptional Spartan in many ways. Plutarch usually looks to provide some childhood stories in his biographies, that give a hint as to the personality of the individual. But in the case of Lysander, he doesn't have a lot to offer. It is known that he was the son of one Aristocleitus, and his family was one of the Heraclidae, those Spartan families who claimed to be descended from the sons of the demigod Heracles. The two Spartan royal families were Heraclidae, but not all Heraclidae were of the royal families. Lysander was one of the non-royal Heraclidae. He grew up in poverty and showed himself eager to please his superiors, something which was considered a positive attribute in Sparta. In statues, he is depicted with a beard and long hair in the traditional Spartan manner. Traditional? It's hard to really picture the Spartans with long hair, as it seems they're rarely depicted that way in popular culture. It seems that way, doesn't it? Maybe it says something about our modern ideas of manliness, that we have a tough time picturing Spartans with long hair. I don't know, but Plutarch attributes the Spartan tradition of men growing their hair long to the legendary Lycurgus, who said that Long hair makes good-looking men more beautiful, and bad-looking men more terrible. (laughs) Yeah, that could be true. (laughs) Anyway, Lysander's importance to history begins when he is appointed as admiral of the Spartan fleet in 407 BC. At this point, Athens' navy has experienced a resurgence with the return of Alcibiades. Lysander takes command of the Spartan fleet at Ephesus, on the coast of modern-day Turkey, and resolves to do what it takes to make it a match for the Athenian navy. As we discussed in our previous episode, the Spartans were relying on the satraps of Persia to finance their fleet, but the Persians had been inconsistent with supplying money, perhaps with the goal of prolonging the conflict between Athens and Sparta, to their benefit. When Lysander learned that Cyrus, the great king of Persia's son, 
was nearby in Sardis, he traveled to meet with him and attempt to obtain more adequate funding for the Spartan fleet. He was able to hit it off with the young Persian prince, and Plutarch says that, quote, Lysander, especially by the submissiveness of his conversation, won the affections of the young prince and greatly roused him to carry on the war, end quote. When Lysander departed, Cyrus arranged a banquet for him, and Lysander requested that the pay of the Spartan sailors be increased. Cyrus happily granted this request. This meant that the Spartan navy now offered better pay than the Athenian navy, and when word got around of this, many Greek sailors deserted the Athenian fleet in favor of the Spartan. With this move, Lysander had weakened the Athenians. But they still had more ships than the Spartans, and Alcibiades was a bold commander who had yet to lose a battle. And so Lysander at first refused to do battle with the Athenians, keeping his ships safe in the harbor of Ephesus. However, Plutarch reports that, quote, Afterwards, when Alcibiades sailed from Samos to Phacaea, leaving Antiochus the pilot in command of all his forces, this Antiochus, to insult Lysander, sailed with two galleys into the port of the Ephesians, and with mocking and laughter proudly rode along before the place where the ships lay drawn up. Lysander, in indignation, launched at first a few ships only and pursued him, but as soon as he saw the Athenians come to his help, added some other ships, and at last they fell to a set battle together, and Lysander won the victory, and taking fifteen of their ships erected a trophy. End quote. The loss of fifteen ships was not a devastating one for Athens. However, the Athenian people had come to expect nothing short of complete success from Alcibiades. Unrealistic or not, they were not prepared to accept even a minor defeat, and voted to remove Alcibiades from command. Wow, so this minor battle was what caused Alcibiades his command for the second time, even though he wasn't even there when it happened? Perhaps that is what annoyed the Athenians, that he wasn't there? It's difficult to say, but it was at this point that, as described in our last episode, Alcibiades chose to reside in Thrace, rather than return to face his enemies and critics in Athens. So this small, unplanned battle ended up being a big win for Lysander, as it removed Athens' most able commander from the war. However, Lysander's term as admiral was coming to an end, so he would not be in a position to follow up on this success. And Plutarch suggests that Lysander deliberately set up the man who would replace him, the Spartan Kelecritidas, to fail. It is said that Lysander returned the remaining money given by the Persian prince Cyrus to Sardis, so that Calicritidus would have to go and make his own arrangements with the Persians in order to continue paying the sailors. However, Calicritidus was an old-school Spartan who thought it dishonorable to beg the Persian barbarians for money. He did make the trip to Cyrus's palace, though, out of necessity, but apparently made something of a fool of himself and was unable to even gain an audience. Nor did the allies in Ephesus like Calicritidus, preferring Lysander, who had promised the important citizens in Ephesus and in other Greek cities, opportunities for enrichment if Sparta were to win the war. And so when Calicritidus was killed in a losing sea battle against the Athenians at Arganusae in 406 BC, an embassy was sent to Sparta, requesting that Lysander be chosen as admiral again. The Spartans, however, had a law against any man serving as navarch, their word for admiral, twice. And so another man was chosen as admiral, with Lysander having a position as vice-admiral, though of course, everyone knew who was really calling the shots. With Lysander back in command of the Spartan navy, Plutarch says that, quote, Cyrus now sent for Lysander to Sardis, and gave him some money, and promised him some more, youthfully protesting in favor to him that if his father gave him nothing, he would supply him of his own, and if he himself should be destitute of all, he would cut up, he said, to make money, the very throne upon which he sat to do justice, it being made up of gold and silver, end quote. 
Cyrus then departed to visit his father, telling Lysander not to do battle with the Athenians until he returned with ships from Phoenicia, which would give Lysander the numerical advantage. However, as Plutarch puts it, quote, Lysander's ships were too few for him to venture to fight, and yet too many to allow of his remaining idol, end quote. So what does he do? Well, he sailed out in search of some targets of opportunity, raiding the islands of Aegean and Salamis, before heading to the Hellespont and attacking the city of Lampsacus. The Athenians, hearing that the Spartan fleet had set sail and had destroyed Lampsacus, sailed to the Hellespont to face the Spartans and secure this vital artery for grain shipments to Athens. The Spartan fleet remained at Lampsacus, and so the Athenians sailed into the Hellespont, picked up supplies at Sestos, and then set up camp at Agospotami, across the strait from the Spartans. It was here, as mentioned in the last episode, that Alcibiades, now a resident in the area, rode into the Athenian camp and advised the Athenians to relocate. The camp was on an exposed stretch of beach, difficult to defend, and too far away from the source of supplies in Sestos. Alcibiades told the Athenian commanders they would be far better off moving the fleet to the nearby harbour of Sestos, where it could be better defended. The new commanders, however, blithely ignored this advice, and Alcibiades rode back to his stronghold, destined to play no further part in the Peloponnesian War. Now in this section of the Hellespont, the strait was about two miles wide, and each morning the Athenian ships would sail across and form a line of battle, daring the Spartans to engage them, but each day Lysander would order his ships to remain in harbour. For four days this went on, and Lysander had men observe the behaviour of the Athenians each day when they sailed back to Agospotami, after the Spartans refused to do them battle. It was noticed that the camp was disorganized, and that once they returned to camp, the crews of the Athenian ships quickly dispersed far along the shore, owing in part to how far they had to go to get food. So on the fifth day, after the Athenians again proudly sailed out to offer battle, and then returned to camp satisfied with themselves, Lysander gave the order to attack. His ships sailed across the strait and fell on the unsuspecting Athenian camp. The Athenian Conon saw the Spartan ships coming and signaled for the camp to prepare to defend itself but there was not enough time to pull the scattered crews together to man the ships. Conon himself escaped with eight ships, and the sacred Athenian messenger ship the Perilous. The rest of the Athenian forces were not so lucky. Plutarch writes that, quote, The Peloponnesians falling upon the rest, some they took quite empty, and some they destroyed while they were filling. The men, meantime, coming unarmed and scattered to help, died at their ships, or flying by land were slain, their enemies disembarking and pursuing them. Lysander took 3,000 prisoners, with the whole fleet, excepting the sacred ship Perilous and those which fled with Conon. So taking their ships in tow, and having plundered their tents, with pipe and songs of victory, he sailed back to Lampsacus, having accomplished a great work with small pains. End quote. Wow, so I guess Lysander figured the best way to defeat the Athenian navy without having to fight them at sea was to fight them on land. Yeah, basically, <laughs> attacked them in their camp when they let their guard down. And uh, in so doing, he completely wiped out the Athenian navy, captured all 171 ships, besides the nine that slipped away with Conon. And as for the 3,000 Athenian prisoners, Lysander deliberated with the Spartan allies, and it was decided that every one of them would be executed. Wow, that's, that's pretty brutal. Yeah, absolutely. This act was justified with talk of previous Athenian atrocities in the war, and that had the Athenians been victorious, they had apparently resolved that they were going to cut off the right thumb of the Peloponnesian prisoners, so they could not hold a spear again. In any event, it was a brutal act, and would not be the last brutal act associated with Lysander. The loss of these ships, and the execution of these prisoners, was essentially the nail in the coffin for the Athenian war effort. 
The Spartans now controlled the vital straits of Hellespont and could cut off grain shipments to Athens. The situation was dire for Athens, and the Athenians knew it. The historian Xenophon picks up the story of the Peloponnesian War where Thucydides left off, although Xenophon's history is considered to be of inferior quality. And Xenophon records the reaction in Athens when news of the defeat at Egospotami reached the city. Xenophon writes that, quote, It was night when the perilous reached Athens with her evil tidings, on receipt of which a bitter wail of woe broke forth. From Piraeus, following the line of the long walls up to the heart of the city, it swept and swelled, as each man to his neighbor passed on the news. On that night no man slept. There was mourning and sorrow for those that were lost, but the lamentation for the dead was merged in even deeper sorrow for themselves, as they pictured the evils they were about to suffer. End quote. So it seems that the Athenian people know that there is likely no coming back from this defeat. Well, without a fleet to supply the city, it seems only a matter of time before they will be forced to surrender. And while the Athenians were contemplating their future, Plutarch says that, quote, Lysander, sailing about to the various cities, bade all the Athenians he met go into Athens, declaring that he would spare none, but kill every man whom he found out of the city, intending thus to cause immediate famine and scarcity there, and that they might not make the siege laborious to him, having provisions sufficient to endure it. And suppressing the popular governments and all other constitutions, he left one Lacedaemonian chief officer in every city, with ten rulers to act with him, selected out of the societies which he had previously formed in the different towns. And doing thus as well in the cities of his enemies, as of his associates, he sailed leisurely on, establishing, in a manner for himself, supremacy over the whole of Greece. Neither did he make choice of rulers by birth or by wealth, but bestowed the offices on his own friends and partisans, doing everything to please them, and putting absolute power of reward and punishment into their hands. And thus, personally appearing on many occasions of bloodshed and massacre, and aiding his friends to expel their opponents, he did not give the Greeks a favorable specimen of the Lacedaemonian government. End quote. And once he had installed Spartan-controlled oligarchies in all of the former Athenian empire, and he understood that famine had taken its toll in Athens, he sailed to the city to accept its surrender. The Athenians were obliged to accept whatever conditions the Spartans imposed, and so Plutarch says an assembly of the Spartans and her allies debated on what to do with the Athenians. Plutarch says that there were proposals to sell off all of the Athenians as slaves, and others to tear down the city and turn it into a sheep pasture, until one man began singing the first chorus in an Athenian play, Euripides' Electra. Plutarch says that upon hearing the song, quote, they were all melted with compassion, and it seemed to be a cruel deed to destroy and pull down a city which had been so famous and produced such men, end quote. So I guess the arts and culture are not just good for the mind, they can be useful for national defense also. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. It is certainly possible that Plutarch's story is totally apocryphal. However, even if it didn't happen exactly that way, it isn't hard to believe that the decision to spare Athens from total destruction might have had something to do with the city's many cultural achievements. Anyway, instead of destroying the city, the Spartans and their allies settled for burning the Athenian ships, pulling down the city walls, and replacing the democratic government of Athens with 30 rulers backed up by a Spartan garrison that was left behind in the city. These so-called 30 tyrants were led by Critias, a relative of Plato, and have been described by the historian Paul Cartledge as ultra-oligarchs, who had no constitutional legitimacy and ruled without any reference to Athenian law. Their only legitimacy came from the Spartan garrison in the city. As the name 30 tyrants suggests, these rulers were greedy, brutal, and unpopular. Now Lysander at this moment was a hugely powerful figure in the Greek world, but Plutarch said he showed little interest in wealth. 
From the spoils of war he had bronze statues erected at Delphi of himself and of all the masters of the ships. All the remainder was sent to Sparta, where the simple Lacedaemonians struggled with how to adjust to this newfound affluence. But while Lysander had little interest in money, he did seem to have a bit of an ego problem. Even though he had accomplished so much, many felt he was a bit too proud of himself. Plutarch says that, quote, Through having so many people devoted to serve him, an extreme haughtiness and contemptuousness grew up, together with ambition, in his character. He observed no sort of moderation, such as befitted a private man, either in rewarding or punishing. The recompense of his friends and guests was absolute power over cities, an irresponsible authority, and the only satisfaction of his wrath was the destruction of his enemy. Banishment would not suffice. End quote. Lysander started to rub people the wrong way, and eventually Pharnabazus, the Persian satrap, sent letters to Sparta complaining about how he was despoiling his country. Of all the Persian satraps, Pharnabazus was the most well-regarded in Sparta for his efforts on Sparta's behalf during the war, and so his complaints were taken seriously by the ephors and Spartan kings. Plutarch says that Lysander made his situation worse by trying to forge a letter from Pharnabazus clearing him of wrongdoing, but was caught in his lie. At this moment, Lysander seemed to think out of sight, out of mind was the best policy, and decided now would be a great time for him to take vacation, and obtain permission to take a trip to the Oracle of Ammon in Libya. So Lysander figured that clearing out Sparta for a while would protect him from punishment, maybe? It certainly seems that way, and it probably wasn't a bad strategy, really. Though Plutarch reports that it was not entirely successful, and he writes the quote, But the kings, while Lysander was on his voyage, considering that keeping, as he did, the cities in possession by his own friends and partisans, he was in fact their sovereign and the lord of Greece, took measures for restoring the power to the people and for throwing his friends out, end quote. And so the 30 tyrants in Athens began to lose the support of Sparta, and resistance within the city grew. A battle was fought in the Piraeus between the 3,000 citizens of the new regime, termed the men of the city, and the Democrats, called the men in the Piraeus. The Democrats won, and Critias was killed in the fight. Lysander returned from his voyage ready to crush the resistance in Athens, but the Spartan kings wanted to curtail Lysander's power, and so King Pausanias was tasked with handling the situation in Athens instead. Pausanias chose not to intervene militarily, and allowed the restoration of democracy in Athens after about a year of tyranny. However, Pausanias did require that the Athenians take an oath of amnesty, probably the first general amnesty in recorded history. Our word amnesty is of course derived from the ancient Greek word amnestia, which literally means not remembering. Anyway, the terms of the amnesty imposed by Pausanias were that, with a few exceptions, no Athenian could be persecuted for having supported the regime of the Thirty Tyrants. And it seems that, for the most part, the terms of this amnesty were observed, which allowed Athens to move forward and not get bogged down in an endless cycle of reprisals between oligarchs and democrats. Well, that's very interesting. I mean, all things considered, things haven't turned out too, too bad for Athens, despite losing the war. I mean, the city was not destroyed, and after one year of tyranny, they actually got their democracy back. Yeah, I mean, certainly things could have turned out worse. Athens has lost its empire, and Sparta has achieved unrivaled supremacy in the Greek world. But as you point out, the city and its democracy will live on. Getting back to Lysander, with the war concluded, he no longer has as much power as he once commanded. But he is still an influential figure in Sparta and still possesses the ambition and intelligence to make effective use of that influence. A few years later, Aegis, one of the Spartan kings, died, leaving behind a son named Leotychides and a brother named Agasilas. Lysander decided to urge the brother to lay claim to the throne, as there were some doubts about the paternity of the son. 
You will recall that when Alcibiades was in Sparta, there were rumors of him carrying on a love affair with Timaea, the wife of King Aegis. So some believe that Leotychides' father was really Alcibiades. Lysander made use of this when arguing in favor of Agesilaus, and it seems he was convincing, as Agesilaus was chosen as king. Now around this time, there was some upheaval going on in the Persian Empire. As we have discussed, it was thanks to money from Persian satraps and princes that the Spartans had been able to man a fleet and eventually defeat the Athenian navy, and the relationships that Lysander developed were a key part of this. After a contested succession, however, Sparta found itself on the wrong side of the new great king of Persia. So there was a fight over who would be the next great king of Persia, and Sparta backed the wrong side. It's quite a story, actually, and I promise to detail the events of 401 and 400 BC in an upcoming episode. But essentially, yes, the Spartans backed the losing side and so found themselves in a state of hostility with the Persian Empire. Lysander urged King Agesilaus to lead an expedition to wrest the Greek cities of Asia Minor from Persian control. Lysander was able to convince the cautious Spartans to support this expedition, in part because the army would be overwhelmingly made up of allies, with only 30 actual Spartans. And so the invasion was launched in 396 BC, and Lysander was brought along by King Agesilaus as his trusted counselor. However, the relationship between Lysander and the king deteriorated once they arrived in Asia. Plutarch says that the king noticed that, quote, When they were coming to Asia, the inhabitants there, to whom he was but little known, addressed themselves to him but little and seldom, whereas Lysander, because of their frequent previous intercourse, was visited and attended by large numbers, by his friends out of observance, and by others out of fear. And just as in tragedies, it not uncommonly is the case with the actors, the person who represents a messenger or servant is much taken notice of and plays the chief part, while he who wears the crown and scepter is hardly heard to speak. Even so was it about the counselor. He had all the real honors of the government, and to the king was left the empty name of power. Agasilas couldn't allow the situation to stand, so he effectively sidelined Lysander, giving him no important duties, and showed disregard for anyone that Lysander spoke on behalf of. Lysander confronted King Agasilas about this and asked him to assign him any duty at which point he was sent to the Hellespont, far away from the main theater of war. Plutarch says that despite being given a secondary role, Lysander did his duty to the best of his ability. Nonetheless, once this job was complete, he was assigned no further duties and returned to Sparta bitter and angry. It was at this time that Plutarch says that Lysander began plotting to alter the constitution of Sparta. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, many Spartans traced their descent to the sons of the hero Heracles, and were thus referred to as Heraclidae. The two royal families of Sparta from which the two Spartan kings were selected were Heraclidae. Lysander wished to change the constitution so that the office of king would be open to all Heraclidae, not just the two traditional royal families. He felt he had convincing arguments in favor of this, but knew that the traditional Spartans were unlikely to respond to logic alone. The Spartans, like all Greeks, were superstitious and placed great importance on oracles and prophecies, and so Lysander thought that if he could produce an oracle to back up his arguments, his revolutionary scheme would have a chance of succeeding. However, he was apparently unable to bribe any oracles to go along with his plan, and the scheme fell apart. To be fair to Lysander, this apparent scheme of his was only discovered after his death, which raises the question of whether it was all made up by his enemies to tarnish his legacy. That definitely seems like a possibility. Yeah. On the other hand, though, Lysander is known to have used deception for military purposes, and he did apparently forge a letter to try to clear himself of accusations of wrongdoing from Pharnabazus. So the scheme to bribe oracles doesn't really seem out of character for Lysander. In any event, if the plot was real, it went nowhere. Anyway, though Lysander may have been somewhat disillusioned with Sparta, 
it didn't stop him from staying in the thick of events, and in 395 BC leading a Spartan army into battle, in what would be dubbed the Corinthian War. This conflict saw Persia backing an alliance of Greek cities, Argos, Thebes, Corinth, and yet again Athens, fighting against Sparta. Wait, Athens is back in action? Just what, almost a decade after being utterly defeated? Yeah, that's right. It certainly a weakened Athens at this point, but one determined to regain its glory. Anyway, Lysander was in command of one army, and the Spartan king Pausanias in command of a second one. They would march on separate routes, and then combine forces to attack the city of Haliartus. Pausanias' force was delayed, though, and so Lysander attacked the city before Pausanias arrived, and was killed in the fighting. Pausanias was able to retrieve Lysander's body under flag of truce. Sparta was greatly grieved at the loss of Lysander, and his reputation was enhanced further when it was discovered after his death how poor he was. Despite having received so much wealth from the Persians, and from all the money captured through military victories, Lysander had not enriched himself, but instead directed it all to Sparta, to allies, or to the war effort. Indeed, many were quite surprised to find this out. In fact, some men who were engaged to marry Lysander's daughters backed out of the marriages when they learned that the family was not wealthy, and the Spartans imposed a fine on these irresponsible young men. Not exactly classy guys. No, not at all. And so, Lysander died in 395 BC, but only after he had completely altered the geopolitical picture in the eastern Mediterranean. He ended the Peloponnesian War which had consumed the Greek world for decades, bringing victory to Sparta and establishing it as hegemon of Greece. Wow, Lysander is certainly an interesting figure, and as you say, with the defeat of Athens, the geopolitical picture in Greece has definitely changed. Well, for our next episode, we'll be stepping away from Greece for a moment to see how things have been developing in Rome when we look at the life of the Roman... Marcus Furius Camillus. Thanks for listening to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to head over to our blog at plutarchsgreeksromans.wordpress.com or check out Plutarch's Greeks and Romans on Facebook. And don't forget to leave us a review on whichever podcast service you are using. See you next time.